Good morning, Moran Park. How are you? My name is Chris Beetham. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Moran. And if you uh, are new to us, we want to warmly welcome you to uh, our family. Um, and so, I don't know, take a look around and see if you see anybody that you may not know. And if you don't know them after the service, would you greet them? Get to know them a little bit. Say hello. Uh, see if they're new to us. Maybe they've been here for five years and you don't know them. Um, that's a possibility, right? So please introduce yourself to somebody after, after the service. Well, we are continuing our series, our seven-week series, on the epic story of Scripture. We're taking a 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of the story that runs from Genesis 1 and creation to Revelation 21-22 at the end of the Bible that ends with the new creation. The Bible is one unified story. And the plan that God launched with in Genesis 1, he will, despite our sin and satanic attack and our, all our attempts to muck it up, he will accomplish that plan in Revelation 21, 22. What is that plan? The plan was, as we saw, I don't know, four weeks ago now, the plan in Genesis 1 was to fill the earth with image bearers who imaged, who reflected his glory, his love, his truth, his light, his benevolence, his goodness, his kindness, his order, his truth into all the world. And that God would dwell with his people, we with him, he with us, and that he would ravish, ravish us with his glory for unending ages. He's creator, we're creature. There is no, there is no fathoming the depths of his glory, his character. And so we've been created to desire God, we've been created to be satisfied in God, and there will be uh, no limits to, he's inexhaustible, and so there will be in the coming ages uh, our learning more about him, our drinking more from him, our being ravished and satisfied uh, in his inexhaustible fountain uh, forever. He's going to need an eternity to unveil his glory uh, to us, and so there will always be this inexhaustible fountain from which to drink, God dwelling with his people and we dwelling with him. We have arbitrarily broken up the story into six parts. You know them by now, most of you. Say them with me. It starts with creation is chapter one, and the fall or the, the rebellion or the treason um, is act two or chapter two, and then we have chapter three is Israel. Good. That's all in the Old Testament. That's 75% of our Bible. We have Israel, and we come to the Gospels in the New Testament, and chapter four is the introduction of Jesus, and then chapter five is the church, and then chapter 6 is the new creation. Good. Well, we are actually moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant, to the New Covenant this morning. As promise, 
becomes fulfillment in the person of Jesus. As a seemingly as a seeming nobody from the little town of Nazareth in this little plot of ground, little plot of land called Israel in the um, Mediterranean world, comes, comes on the scene and begins preaching the good news of the kingdom and the arrival of the fulfillment of all God's purposes. So what are we doing? We're providing just a big picture overview. There's so much of the Old Testament, obviously, that we didn't cover. There's, if you were to like take your, take your airplane and go down from 30,000 feet and go down to 10,000 feet, obviously, there's so much more there. There's so much more detail. There's so much more about God that we could learn from the Old Testament. But we really are taking a, a step back to try to give this big picture of the epic story of Scripture so that you can kind of, you understand how your Bible all fits together. Does that make sense? How all these dis- otherwise disparate feeling stories all interlock and build on each other. Uh, So that's what we're doing. And we're going into the Gospels this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as promise becomes fulfillment as the Old Testament. And it really does, it really does work this way. There's other ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, interlock and engage uh, besides the fact that you've got this, this client, this, this story that builds upon uh, each chapter builds upon the earlier chapter. But promise and fulfillment is one of the key ways that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant and the New Testament fit together uh, uh, and interlock. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, this man named Jesus, who is now worshipped by three billion people across the planet, this nobody named Jesus arrives on the scene and says, um, and um, Steve, I'm going to just put this one up. First, this is actually slide four, Mark 1, 14, 15. Jesus comes on the scene saying this. Um, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has, the time has come. The kingdom of God has arrived the age of waiting, the age of promise, the age, that age is over as Jesus enters the scene in the time of, of fulfillment and the dawning of the new age, the dawning of the new creation uh, comes. Now last week, we ended the service by you actually giving me a few things that we were to look for I just kind of wrote these down. Three things as we kind of ended the Old Testament and came into the New Testament, three things that we were, some things that we were to look for when the Messiah arrived. Here's some things that you said. Um, you said he would fulfill the ancient promise that he would come from Judah, from the lineage of David, right? You said he would be full of the Holy Spirit. He said, how, how would we identify the Messiah? Well, he, when he came... He would judge and establish, he would establish justice and righteousness on the earth. Um, he would establish God's new creation, his kingdom on the earth. Um, oh, you said he would, we talked about this, that he would bruise the serpent, the satanic serpent, right? On the head, he would crush the serpent. But in that process, he would himself be crushed. He would be bruised and die. And then the final thing that we talked about was that when the Messiah came, 
God's people, their sins, would be forgiven. He would be the suffering servant, right? He would die for the sins of his people, and he would give them a new heart. He would give them a new heart. In fact, let's review that just a little bit. We talked about Act 1 already and what God is doing in creation. And we saw that the fall comes, right? The image rebels. The image commits treason against its king. It doesn't want to build God's kingdom upon the earth. Adam and Eve decide that they don't trust God and they want to build their own kingdoms upon the earth. But the consequence of that decision is to unleash sin and death and separation from God into the world. And we find out the text says, it's not just that we have decided behaviorally that sometimes we'll do bad things and sometimes we'll do good things. What we found there was that Adam and Eve, and we, their, their bodies become corrupt. And as their children, as their spiritual children, as their physical children, we inherit the genetics of Adam and Eve. Not just their physical genetics, but their spiritual genetics. We inherit the evil heart. We inherit a heart that does not want God. A heart that created to know God, to desire God, to love God, to be with God, to obey God, to trust God, to delight in God, hates God, doesn't want anything to do with God, doesn't want God, doesn't want to trust God, doesn't want to obey God, wants to walk away from God, wants to do our own thing. It's not just that we do, and this is all review, right? It's not just that we do bad things sometimes. It's that at our core, our hearts are diseased with the cancer of sin. And so we saw that as the epic story continues, God has got to find, if, God, if plan A is going to be plan A, and the earth is going to be filled with image bearers who love God and reflect his glory in all the world, in all the earth, and are ravished by his glory, God's got to find a way to solve the problem of sin and the evil human heart. And we saw that the Old Testament promises heart surgery, if you remember those texts. Somehow, some way, God is going to fix our desire factory. We're going to undergo heart surgery, spiritual heart surgery. He's going to take out the heart of stone, and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. He's going to take out the sinful heart, and he's going to replace it with the gift of the Spirit. So we're looking for the Messiah to do that when he comes in the Gospels. Okay. Well, let's look at the identity of this man named Jesus. All four Gospels, if you don't know what they are, the four Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In some ways, they're very similar, and in some ways, they're very different. But all four of them are basically biographies of Jesus that focus on his three years of public ministry and then climax with his death on the cross and his resurrection. All four want to identify Jesus for us as that promised Messiah. So Matthew 1.1 says this, and Steve, I'm just going to fly through these. 
Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament says that. This Jesus, he's that guy. This Jesus, he's that long-awaited promised king of the Davidic lineage. What does Messiah mean? Just means the anointed king, the anointed Davidic king of Israel, the long-awaited king. Mark 1.1 also starts his gospel with the exact same language. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. Uh, context here, um, an angel comes to the, the virgin, Mary, and says, hey, you're going to have a child. It's going to be a special child. The angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, give him the throne of his father David, right? He's that promised, long-awaited king. And he will rule over Israel, Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. So promise... Fulfillment in Jesus claims the Gospels. John 20. Now John has 21 chapters, so this is at the very, very end of the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. Jesus, uh, uh, John says, the author says this about the purpose of his book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the the Messiah, the long-awaited Davidic king promised in the Old Testament, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember that God concentrates his promise to save the world in Abraham's family, Genesis 12, right? Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob becomes 12 tribes. And then we see that Judah is the, the promised tribe. God concentrates and focuses his plan in and through the tribe of Judah, which is further concentrated and focused on the, on the lineage and family of David. And we see that finding its fulfillment here, according to the Gospels in the New Testament. Watch out for the speaker. Might trip you. <clears throat> so the Gospels waste no time in identifying this Jesus as this Jesus as that Messiah, that ultimate Davidic king, who's going to bring about God's new creational kingdom and the promised age of fulfillment of all of God's promises in light of his original intentions for creation. Well, if the story is, and we've been titling it shorthand, Creation to New Creation, if the story is God on mission to rescue his world despite the fall from, uh, from the sin and death, and to accomplish plan A, just, there is no plan B, accomplish plan A, at the end of the story, new creation, Jesus somehow then needs to be fit into that epic story, right? We need to read Jesus, not some sort of like hero who really has no connection to the story of which he's a part. When we put Jesus into that story, we see all kinds of things 
happen. For example, you tell me. You've maybe read a gospel or two. If you haven't, maybe you take a, maybe you take a pick up Bible off the shelf, read a gospel this week, and uh, get to know Jesus a little bit better. But for those of you who have read a gospel before, now we've got, the, got his three years of public ministry. That's like the first two-thirds of each gospel, right? And then the final third of each gospel is his final week, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. What in his public ministry, what's he doing those three years of public ministry? What are the, what are the major things he's doing? You tell me. He's healing. Good. We'll pick that up in just a second. What else? He's teaching. Good. What's that? He's calling to repentance. Right. He's calling them to turn, uh, turn and come back to God because the time is fulfilled. What's he doing, what's he doing to uh, satanic, satanic horde, satanic, Satan's army? What? He's casting out demons, right? Exorcisms, healings, miracles, teaching, especially, especially in parables. Or he's, and he's preaching the gospel to them, right? To the poor, yep. He's preaching, he's preaching the good news that the kingdom has arrived. The age of fulfillment has arrived. Repent and believe this gospel. So healings, exorcisms, and teachings, parables. Well, let's take a look at first at his, uh, let's take a look first at um, his healings. What are some of the healings that he does? The blind see. The lame, the lame walk. The dead rise. The deaf can hear. Lepers are cleansed. Is that what, I didn't hear that, okay. The lepers are cleansed. Feeding 5,000. Calming the storms. Water to wine. Chains are broken. People are set free. Put that into the epic story of Scripture. What's that? Raised from the dead. People are raised from the dead, right? Is, now the typical reading of Jesus, basically, a typical reading of the Gospels is, Jesus comes on the scene, right? He does a lot of miracles, proving that he's like the second person of the Trinity, that he's God, and then he dies on the cross. And so the miracles function basically as like, hey, I'm the, I'm the second person of the Trinity, I'm God, and I'm going to die for you. No, put them into the epic story. What do, the, what do the healings do? They're signposts. They're prefigurements. They're foreshadowings. They're all glimpses of what the new creation is going to look like when it comes in all its fullness. The blind see, right? The lame walk. The diseased are fully healed. All those are glimpses of new creation. They're all signposts of what it's going to look like when the age to come comes in all its fullness. Right? They're not just random miracles that Jesus does to show off a little bit and say, I'm God. Now I'm going to die for you. No, put him into the epic story. What's he doing? They're all glimpses of the kingdom. They're all glimpses of new creation. This is what it's going to look like when the kingdom, when the new creation comes in all its fullness. When the image bearer 
fallen is the image bearer redeemed. Mm. Mm. Oh, God. That's good news, right? And then how about the, how about the exorcisms? Put them, put them into the story that runs from creation to new creation. What are the stories? What are the satanic? What are the exorcisms about? Is he doing awesome miracles showing that he's got power over Satan? That he's the good guy and he's the bad guy? Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Put him into the story. What's he doing? They're all signposts of the new creation. Is Satan going to be there in the new creation? No, he's going to be decimated, right? He's going to be destroyed, right? There's not going to be anything left of his army, right? He's going to be wiped out. The serpent slayer is going to crush the head of the serpent. And he shows up as the age, in the age of fulfillment as the Davidic, the long-awaited Davidic king, as the Messiah. And he starts crushing the head of the serpent. He starts wiping out evil. He says, you usurped my creation. And I'm going to take it back over. And I'm going to, I'm going to kick you out like Adam should have done in the garden. And I'm going to destroy you. Time's up. Mm. Cleaning house. Cleaning house. That's exactly right. Put it into the epic story. What's he doing? Glimpses of new creation in the exorcisms. Okay, well, how about the parables? How about his teachings? Jesus walks around and does a lot of teaching. We tend to read them as disconnected stories, dis disconnected little pivy tales that have no bearing or no context in the larger story of creation and new creation. We tend to read them as moralistic tales, Jesus teaching, you know, how to be good. I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic there. We don't, we don't quite get that bad. Jesus teaching us kind of how to be good, you know, honor your father and mother, or be faithful to your wife, or whatever he's teaching. No. Especially his parables, which dominate the Gospels. His parables are all about the new creation kingdom. Go back and read them. They're all about the kingdom. They're either about the nature of the kingdom, or they're about the participants of the kingdom. They're either about the unexpected nature of the kingdom, We'll talk about that next week. And they're also about the unexpected participants of the kingdom. Those who think they're in are not, and those who don't think they're in are in. The nobodies, right? Those who have nothing, those who simply throw themselves on God are those who are in the kingdom. But let's not get too distracted. But let's just put those, let's just put his teaching is all about the kingdom. Put it into the context of the larger epic story. The weak say, I am strong. Even his teaching on, which I mentioned already randomly, even his teaching of uh, marriage. Where does, he, where does he immediately go in his teaching of, of marriage? He's saying, you know, the Pharisees come to him and have a question about divorce, right? And he comes back to them and says, it was not always so. But back in creation, it was one husband, one wife being faithful to each other and working together to fill God's earth with God's glory. He points them back to creation because the new creation is going to be creation redeemed, right? I'm going to, like, kill myself. <clears throat> All right. 
Daniel, you know, I can figure that out in just a minute when you come back up. I'm not paying attention to anything I'm doing up here. So, all right, so that's the parables. Jesus is not doing anything random. Jesus is not this random storyteller giving moralistic teachings. He's not doing the miracles. His miracles are not like random and disparate and um, doing a few things to kind of get your attention, a little, you know, a few fireworks, um, and then he dies for us. That's just not how this is working. Think epic story. Think storyline. How do the Gospels fit into that larger story? Okay, let's move on. Who, there's other participants in, in the Gospels. It's not just Jesus, right? Jesus actually calls to himself disciples. And he calls to himself how many disciples? Special disciples. Twelve. Oh, oh, all right. Put that in the larger context of epic story. Why? Why twelve? What? I'm older and going deaf. One more time. Speak up. Twelve tribes of Israel, right? When you see Jesus gathering around himself, twelve disciples, you immediately think, if, you're, if you know your Bible and you're, you're a Jew, in Jesus' day, you're thinking, twelve tribes of Israel, right? The people of God of the Old Testament who are, are on God's mission, right? Remember that God chooses Israel to be the channel of world salvation, to be the channel of the kingdom of priests and the light to the nations. But by the end of the epic story, Act 3, by the end of the Old Testament, They've come to a screeching halt, right? They're, 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 they have the Adamic evil heart. They, they're stuck in their sin. The mission has stalled out. Israel is going nowhere. God's mission to save the world is stuck in Israel because Israel herself partakes of the fundamental problem of the evil human heart. But God has made promises that he will in and through Israel save the world. So when God, when John, I'm sorry, well, he is God. When Jesus gathers around himself 12, he is redefining Israel around himself. Now, they're all Jews. They're all ethnic Jews, but not all Israel is Israel. Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah are on the out. Jews that do believe, Jewish nobodies who are, do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're on the end. They become the nucleus of the, of the renewed Israel. The renewed people who are going to, in fact, succeed to carry forth the mission that God promised through Israel to save the world. You got to think epic story. Jesus redefining Israel now around himself. Who, who is the Israel of God of the New Testament? Who is the Israel of God of the New Covenant? All those who trust and follow Jesus. All Jews at first, right? See, the typical story goes, well, Old Testament people of God were the Jews, but the New Testament people of God are all the non-Jews, all the Gentiles. He rejected the Jews. No. He didn't cut himself off from his promises. He, made, he promised, God promised, that he's going to save the world through Israel. And if he makes that promise, he's going to fulfill that promise. But it just so happens that in the New Testament, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, start coming in like a flood, 
And it does seem like uh, the Jews are certainly are outnumbered. But the whole thing starts as a Jewish movement, as an Israel movement. Twelve disciples, all Jews. Israel redefined around Jesus. And just to give a kind of a foretaste, a foreshadowing of where we're going, Epic Story Act 5, it is all those who put their trust in Jesus, all who follow Jesus, are that new Israel, and we are on mission. And the mission is still the same mission it was in the Old Testament. Because there's not like this, like, cut off that things are so different back here that there's no continuity between here. The epic story is the epic story. The mission is the mission. God is recreating a people for himself, a renewed Israel, redefined and reshaped around Jesus, who will carry that mission to the world and will accomplish it where Old Testament Israel failed. How can I be so confident? How can I be so confident that the New Testament Israel, people of God, will succeed where the Old Testament Israel failed? I mean, are we, are we better people? We get a, why is the church, we'll just call it the church for now, why is the church going to succeed as the new, renewed people of God where Old Testament Israel failed? We're still fallen people, right? What's the difference going to be? What's that? Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Christ's cross, Christ's person, Christ's cross, and the gift of his spirit are going to be all the difference, as we'll see. Remember that Jesus has to find a way, God has to find a way to do two things that we talked about last week, right? We've already mentioned them this morning. Let's just review. God has to find a way to do two things. He has to find, number one, a way to fix our hearts. How do you fix a desire factory? We want what we want. So how does God fix our hearts? Because they're evil. They don't want God. And apart from him, we can't fix it ourselves. We can't, like, rip our hearts out of ourselves and fix ourselves. We actually do need a Savior. We cannot do this work ourselves. You cannot save yourself. You cannot fix your heart. You don't want God. And you're going to self-destruct and you're going to implode unless he does something. Gives you the gift of the new heart, right? So he's got to find a way to give us the gift of the new heart. We've been talking about that for weeks. And then second, even though he does love his people and he does promise to give them the new heart in the days of Messiah, His people, and in fact, not just his people, all the world, has been committing treason and rebellion for centuries. And God is not just a loving father, he's a just judge. And he cannot wink at sin. His honor has been defamed 
His glory has been dishonored. His laws have been transgressed and trampled to the earth in willful rebellion. The convict is in the dock, waiting trial, and that's us. And so for us to be able to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, he has got to find a way to give us the new heart, and more fundamentally, he's got to find a way to take care of our sin. And we saw in Isaiah 53 last week that there's going to be the great exchange. God comes up with a plan. The suffering servant, the righteous one, the perfect one, is going to die on our behalf and we are going to switch places. The righteous for the unrighteous. The good one for the evil one. The perfect one for the wicked. He will die and we'll go free. The Messiah will be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. The Gospels, all, all four of them, climax with his last supper, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. As a final meal, Jesus has a final meal together with his disciples. He knows he's going to die at the cross. He knows. And he's sharing a Passover meal, a Jewish Passover meal with his disciples. And he calls it the, the we call it the Last Supper. And he says these words in Luke 22, Luke 22, 19 to 20. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He breaks the unleavened bread, and they pass it around, and they share it. Turning the Passover meal into a new covenant second Passover meal, a second Exodus meal. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, which is red with wine, looks like blood, right? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, the words new covenant only occur here and only one time in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, which we've already looked at three weeks ago. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 31 because Jesus is alluding to the new covenant. He's saying the new covenant is going to be ratified, inaugurated in my violent, in my death on the cross. My blood is going to ratify the new covenant. But what does the new covenant say? What, what did Jeremiah prophesy? Let's take a look. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Here's the allusion to the new covenant. Here's what the new covenant's all about. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, grounded now, here's the ground of the new covenant, here's the basis of the new covenant, here's what it's built on, 
Here's the foundation of the new covenant. For, as a key word, that's a massive word, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is built on a definitive sacrifice for sins. Jesus is going to find a way. Jesus, at the cross, dies for our sins. That great exchange happens, so our sins are paid for, right? And then the new covenant is launched, and we're given the new, the new heart. What does it mean to write God's law on our heart? What was, what used to be written on our hearts? Sin. Jeremiah says that earlier in chapter 17. Only sin is engraved upon your heart. God writes his law in our hearts. God gives us the new heart. It means that what you love is God's word. What you love is doing God's word. It means who you love is God. It means you desire God. God's doing spiritual heart surgery, right? Replacing the heart of stone, replacing it with the heart of flesh. A truly, fully, finally human heart that actually makes you an image bearer become the image bearer you always were created to be. The new covenant. Forgiveness for sins and his death and the gift of the new heart. And that is, of course, what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The gift of the new covenant. The gift of Jesus himself as the sacrifice for your sin so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be made clean, so that you could be in the holy God's presence forever in the new creation. Right? You can't be there if you're not clean. Because that place is going to be clean. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be whole. So he finds a way to clean us up. He finds a way to forgive us. But second, the gift of the new covenant and his blood is that new heart. If you didn't get one, there's still some up here up front. There were some in the back. I don't hate what we're about to do, but I do hate the COVID, COVID cups. You know, it's been two years of this where we don't, have a, we don't have a loaf of unleavened bread. We don't have cups with wine. We'll get there someday. COVID will be over someday. We can do better than COVID cups. But as we enter into this time of taking the Lord's Supper, this is what we're doing. We're remembering. We're remembering the new covenant. We're remembering two things. We're remembering the gift of his blood that secures the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be cleaned up. And then we're remembering the gift of the new heart that he gives to us 
and the gift of his spirit. The cross and the spirit are the gifts of the new covenant. So let's go ahead and open up this thing, not spill it. I'll probably drop my bread. Jesus said on the night he was betrayed that the bread represents his body, which is going to be broken for his people. Maybe you want to break it in your fingers. And then we eat it together. The body of Jesus broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of my sins at the cross. And let's go ahead and open up our cups very carefully. We're going to spill on our neighbor. Once you got that thing opened, why don't you take a look into it? What color is that? It's red, right? It's deep red? Deep red. It does look like blood. It's not. It's grape juice. But it reminds us of the blood that Jesus shed for us, that we could have the new heart. Why don't we drink it together and remember his blood shed for us? Remember. What are you doing with that cup? And Daniel, Daniel, why don't you come on ahead? We'll come up front here. You are saying yes to Jesus. Jesus, I am a sinner, and I need your blood. I need your death. I need to be forgiven. I have sinned against God, and I want to be clean. But you're also saying, Jesus, I want that new heart. I want the gift of the new covenant. I want you to come live inside of me and take over and transform my heart. I want to become fully human. If you have never given your life to Jesus, if you have never, if you have never thought about making him the Lord and Savior of your life, would you do that today? Would you consider that today? Maybe you've never heard the claims of Christ. And for those of you who have walked with him for 50 years, 5 years, 10 years, rejoice in the gift of the new covenant. And rejoice in the gift of the new heart. Amen. Amen.